The name's Anonymous. Fanboys Anonymous. Welcome, everyone, to episode 002 of Review to a Kill, a James Bond review point podcast where we'll be breaking down the films and the 007 elements that make them what they are. We are uh, following up with Dr. No here. We're talking about From Russia with Love, continuing on with the franchise as we were speaking about before. Go ahead and check out episode 00 and episode 001 if you want to continue on this journey with us. And who are we? Well, you should know by now, but in case you don't, I am your host, as always, Tony Mango. Joining me as always, I've got the old man, Callum Wiggins. From Britain with apathy. <laughs> <laughs> Robert D. Felice. We were saying back in England. Hello. <laughs> so, uh, for much with love, um, we are trying to tighten up this podcast a little bit here, but we're still going to talk about a lot of the same things that we were talking about in the last one. We're going to talk about the girls, the gadgets, the villains, the music, the action, the humor, other miscellaneous things here and there. I also want to institute something that I didn't think of the last time. And uh, after we get done recording, I'm like, ah, this should be a gimmick because I love my puns. I think instead of saying something's uh, like ultimately at the end of the day, the movie's good or bad, I think we should say it's shaken or stirred. Because oh, stirred's bad. <laughs> uh, or unless you get to, uh, you only live twice, then it's a little bit different. But. Um, yeah, uh, overall impressions about the movie. Uh, I have always been fond of From Russia With Love, but I have a fluctuating uh, opinion about it. Sometimes it's one of my favorite ones. Like, not favorite, favorite, like top five or so, but maybe like in my top ten. And then some other times I'm like, ah, I don't like this one at all. And then other times it's in the middle. This one goes all the way around for me. Most recently it's been towards the higher end. Forget exactly where I ranked it currently because I haven't published my um my rankings. I'm kind of doing them again at the end of this after I've got like a better idea of uh of how I would rank everything. But currently, as I bring up my uh my drafts here on the website, it looks like I've got the. I mean, Doctor No, I have to still adjust to. That's another thing. I, I eventually that's going to get a little bit higher than what I had it before. But right now it's in my A tier, my secondary tier. How do you guys feel about it overall? I thought this was so much better than Dr. No. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this one. And of course it was my first time seeing it, but I don't know. I just, for me, this hit so much better than Dr. No. I um I enjoyed more of the components of this movie more than I did Dr. No. But I found the overarching story of this to be weaker. So I don't really know. I still kind of sitting, it's really close to me between the two of them, just because I feel that the overarching narrative between, especially between Bond and Tatiana was very, very weak. And so I didn't, I didn't enjoy the overall story, but I enjoyed the bits and pieces that went into telling that story. If that makes any sense. It's definitely a different movie. Like, um, Dr. No, for all of how slow, I guess you could say is the word, that it takes to get there, it's a mystery. And at the end, it's this kind of bombastic sort of, you know, all the uh, big explosion and everything like that. Whereas this is very, very simple. It's basically just, they're going to meet, they're going to bang, and then we're going to screw them over. 
and the plot's laid out right out of the gate. Like, you know exactly how things are going to go. And it's kind of, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's a follow-up, but at the same time, it's not a follow-up because the book wasn't originally set as like a direct follow-up to Dr. No, because they're all out of order and everything. But it's very, very interesting. I think we're going to have a particularly fascinating podcast. Would you like to hear about it? Well, stay tuned. <laughs> and if you do, uh, drop a comment below and uh, tell us your thoughts on this kind of thing. Um, do the same thing you would normally do here. Subscribe to all over the place uh, on the Facebook or the Twitter or the YouTube channel. Hit, hit that little notification bell as well. Hit the like button. Hit the share button. Um, if you want us to do more of these in the future, of course, check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash fanboysanonymous. Check out the merchandise shops on TeePublic and Redbubble. I might maybe try to do some of these uh, Bond-related things, put them up there. I don't know. If you have any ideas, let me know. And um, yeah, it's mostly the plugs that are out of the way. Let's uh, let's start things off with, um, I guess, just the opening. <laughs> that would make sense. <laughs> you don't say. Uh, they finally start... Uh, finally. It's only the second movie. Um, we get a pre-credit sequence, and originally this was not planned to be a pre-credit sequence. It was going to be the opening of the movie, and they decided that they just liked the flow of it a little bit better if it would have that and then go into the title sequence and then go into the rest of the movie. It's had a big tradition going forward. I'm a huge fan of the fact that they did that. It's one of my favorite things in the Bond films is to watch the pre-credit sequence and see how they do it. And in this one, it's the second Bond film, and they're making you think that they killed off Bond already. <laughs> yeah. Weird start, but it actually kind of hooked me in early because I was wondering, well, what, what the hell is this? You know? Yeah, it really caught my attention. Just, obviously, you know that that's not actually the case, but having never seen the movie before, but knowing that there's a huge franchise that spawns off the back of it, I kind of wondered what they were doing in the first <laughs> part of it, really. Do you guys think that there's going to be, like, clones or, uh, you know, one of those things? Well, it might have been something where Bond fakes his own death or something like that. Yeah. We'll get to, like, thinking. five of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine, you, I imagine that's something that he falls into quite a few times. <laughs> Uh, I really like how they, I don't know what they did. I've been trying to look into it to see if there's any information about it, but I really, really like what they did with Connery's face. It looks like in retrospect that he's wearing a mask. There's some weird like powder on him or something, or it's got this latexy kind of feel knowing that it's a mask, like kind of like mission impossible style. Every time I watch this movie now, I'm like, yeah, you know what? They make it look like he's got a weird face. I thought it was good. It was really good. You know, it really sinks. It makes you sink your teeth into, oh, okay, they're really coming to kill this guy. And they're trying to do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Something that I didn't get the vibe of in Dr. Now. <laughs> but I also got the impression that just seeing Connery's actions during this sequence, I just felt like, okay, this isn't Bond-like. Mm. Because he's just, he's going around the, the bushes and stuff like that, and he's being tailed, obviously. And then he just starts shooting. You think, okay, yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that if you were Bond. You would be a bit more subtle about the entire thing. Like, he, he just immediately, like, that's the sort of thing that you'd expect a henchman that has absolutely no idea how to be James Bond would do in that situation. 
Any parents, slow. I thought it was 63, and they just hadn't ironed <laughs> out the character uh, traits yet, so he was just being a dumbass. And he does the whole thing where, like, when he shoots, he pushes the gun forward. I don't know why people tend to do that. You would think it would be the opposite, but it's the whole, like, I'm going to, like, I'm going to make the bullet hit you better <laughs> or something. <laughs> they, when they were filming this, apparently, one of the things that happened was whoever was responsible for casting um, this particular role didn't think twice about the idea that they had cast somebody that looked a lot like Connery. So when they did the first reveal of the mask, they were like, this dude looks way too much like Connery. People are going to be really confused that it's like, you called off Bond. Oh, wait, it's a mask. Oh, wait, it's Bond. So they had to reshoot it with somebody with a mustache so they could be like, there you go. See, it's not him, you know? And one of the people that's in the scene is Walter, the actor, is Walter Gotell. He plays Morzini. He's going to be in like six more films as a completely different character. One of my favorite characters, actually, General Gogol, big fan of the guy, but he is one of the many people that if you don't really pay too much attention, you wouldn't realize is in separate Bond films. There's various people here and there. Um, We'll talk about another one a little bit later, but sometimes people play different parts in different movies. Maude Adams is one. She's in three Bond films as three different Bond girls, and... uh, there's like people that are like, you know, uh, this guy's the guy running the communications thing in one movie. And then in another movie, he's another communications guy or this person's the guy who bumps into Bond in the street in this one shot. And then in another movie, he's this completely separate character or whatever. Morzini in this film, if we're talking about villains, he's not really a great villain. Uh, he's got one spot towards the end and that's about it. Uh, two spots towards the end, I guess you could argue, but he's really just a guy. I don't really give him a pass or uh, or a flaw. Um, as far as villains goes, he's he's forgettable. You guys even remember who Morzani is? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'd have no idea who you're talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> he is the guy at the boat sequence at the end who's like, "Hey, don't kill him, just like get him to stop." And he's oh, the one who right. uh, yeah, kills Kronstein. Yeah, he sucks as a villain because like he just he's telling everyone. To, I mean, to be fair, he's strangely honourable in the way that he's telling everyone to abandon ship, but he's staying on the ship. Yeah, <laughs> and just allows himself to get caught on fire and then fall in the ocean. That's <laughs> really strange. Uh, but we do get introduced to another uh the the main main villain. I guess you could say actually that he's not the main villain. He's more the henchman, oddly enough. Yeah, yeah number one is the main villain. I mean, though we don't really see who well, he is at this point. I, even that. Like, I, I would argue that uh, Rosa Klebb is more of a villain, but... Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, this guy's just the, the muscle. We get introduced to Donald Grant, which doesn't sound as menacing as Red Grant, which he gets uh, referred to as. Red Grant's the one that kills Bond with the... He, he garrots him. Um, that's the right phrase, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, garrot. Uh, Garrot's him, yeah. But the... Uh, you get a good impression at the very least for the very beginning of it. Like this dude killed Bond. Okay, it's not Bond, but he'll kill somebody, and he's got a good chance of killing Bond. He looks menacing. He uh, he seems like he's a physical uh, match for him instead of a guy with no hands, <laughs> like the last film. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I like Grant. Um, they've got a great sequence where um. Morzini is uh, showing off the training sequence, uh, the training grounds uh, to Rosa Klebb. 
which is really kind of ridiculous because it's like people dodging flamethrowers and as if it's like a a youth center or something. Well, that implies there's flamethrowers at youth centers. I don't think that there is, but you know what I mean. Um, people are playing these weird like uh, dodging games and there's a shooting range to it, whatever. But Grant is standing there and she hits him with brass knuckles and whatever. Soon he's built solid. Um, you guys think about Grant. We're, we'll get more into like the stuff that happens later on on the train um, as time goes on. But I really enjoyed him. I enjoyed. Yeah, Go ahead. Like, yeah, he's a good. Like, prime. I'd, I'd say, I guess, primary antagonist in terms of just the person that actually interacts the most with Bond out of this. I, I think that the fact that he doesn't talk too much throughout the movie works because. I think it's probably for the best in most cases that the um, Bond villain is a little bit more of the the silent but the silent but deadly type, and I think he fits that bill quite nicely. He's like a yeah. fart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. I just I think he really felt like a match for Bond, and by one point in this movie, I actually genuinely said, "Oh shit!" Even though I know this movie comes out in 63 and we're still doing bond films like that's how convincing he was by the end of this film so he's played by robert shaw who you might know as quint from jaws hmm. they look drastically different those two yeah, parts so. yeah i i didn't know that for a while as a kid i was just like oh, this is just some guy i've never seen him before in any other movie because in the span of it's like 13 years, I think, between them. It would be only like 10 or so. Forget when Jaws comes out. But um, it seems like he ages like 30 years. Like, he looks like he's in his 30s here. And then he looks like he's in his late 50s or something in the uh, the other movie, Jaws. Um, Red Grant's great. We'll get more into him. Um, but we're introduced to another one of the villains, Kronstein. Love that name. He's playing chess on this great set. Uh, they've got this big chess board and whatever, and they've got this funny little moment where uh, this guy hands him a drink, and it's got a little, like, hey, you're needed by Spectre uh, napkin underneath it. And Kronstein, the way that he gets rid of it is he just pretends to wipe his mouth with it and then rips it up. And he's like, all right, you know, screw it. I'm just going to beat this guy, and, you know, I got to leave. So uh, enough with that. We get into the whole idea that he has planned out this whole entire film. He has set up the stealing of Elector and passing it over between Tatiana and, um, and Bond, and she's going to be set up, and he's going to be set up. And he mentions on this uh, that they get into this whole idea that, well, you know, isn't this just going to be an obvious trap? And he's like, yeah, it is an obvious trap, but as... Um, you know, my reading of the British is they're going to take this as a challenge and they're going to go into that. So Callum, as our resident Brit, would you take this challenge as an obvious trap and go along with it? Would you see it that way? I mean, I guess that I would see it as an obvious trap because it's the way they were discussing this uh, decoding machine, the lector. It just makes it seem like, okay, you don't get hold of these things very often. So being presented one in such an incredible opportunity by essentially the way they describe it later on about this woman who just wants to leave, uh, like de uh, defect from Russia, join the British Secret Service, but only because she's fallen in love with a guy that she's never met before, makes it seem like 
Okay, okay, that's clearly an obvious ruse, but I also buy into the idea, especially in the nineteen sixties in a Britain that's like still reveling from the fact that we won two world wars and yah 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 all that other like brave stuff. It's just the idea of like, oh we can walk into these traps and we'll walk out and foil them anyway because we're the British and we're the greatest at that point. <laughs> so I I totally buy that's the sort of vibe you would have between um the British spies in the nineteen sixties, particularly Bond because of his own particular arrogance towards this stuff. I, for one, could never imagine a country being so full of itself. <laughs> <laughs> never, right? Never. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Kronstein's another one of our villains. Uh, uh, we get introduced, I mean, it's the beginning of the movie, and within three scenes of the film or something, we got like six villains already, because we've got not only Red Grant, uh, we've got Morzini, we've got this whole Spectre training ground type of thing. We've got um, Kronstein, but they're talking to Blofeld, Number one, who we don't know as Blofeld at this point. We're going to get to know him throughout a couple different films. He is played by two different people. Somebody's doing a voiceover. That's, I don't know the name. I didn't bother looking that up. And the actual hands is Anthony Dawson, who was Professor Dent in the last movie. They were just like, hey, can you just be the hands for the next couple films? <laughs> you think that's how they pump these films out so quickly? Kinda, yeah. They use a lot of the same crew, not the same director, but a lot of the same directors come back throughout different films. Terrence Young does more than one. John Glenn uh, is a producer and uh, editor and all this other kind of stuff, director. So they do kind of pump them out pretty quickly. And if there's just like, hey, like let's get a uh, let's get Dawson back. He can just be the hands. Nobody's gonna go. That's Anthony Dawson's hands. You know, <laughs> it's not like these days where people go like super crazy over those things. Blofeld doesn't say or do much in this, but you get a good presence about him too. I'm a huge fan of Blofeld. I like this is like my favorite Blofeld by far. He's calculated. Well, I, Thunderball might be a little bit better, but he's calculating. He talks about the fish as being like what we do here is we're the the fish that's on the side that's not getting into the fight until the other two have worn themselves out and then this one just strikes and attacks what do you guys think about blofeld i mean he's obviously he's the the leader of the whole operation he clearly commands a lot of respect that the other two um cleb and kronstein are clearly very fearful of him and they don't want to screw up in any situation and they're very confident they won't do it um yeah so i think it it does a good enough job to establish him as the head honcho is Spectre, and he's the one that's pulling all the strings here, but you don't see enough of him to make him feel like he's at the moment a huge threat to Bond as an individual, but he's clearly going to... You clearly get the sense from this one, okay, Bond's not done with this guy. This guy needs to come down before Bond can actually defeat Spectre. And I love a good mastermind, so I'm all for it. Big fan. You guys getting Inspector Gadget vibes of uh, Dr. Claw? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never really watched Inspector Gadget, so I can't really say that side of it, but... You should rectify that. I, I'm getting I'm getting vibes of uh, Dr. Evil before you actually see Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movies. Yep. Dr. Evil based off of Blofeld. Because <laughs> he's got the cat as well. he got the cat as well. Yeah, so Mr. that's the iconic thing of it. Yep. It's, Does uh, the cat have a name? Nope. Yeah. They've never said the cat's name. Funny enough. They actually imply that there's multiple cats, too, which is really weird. 
I mean, that, when we get to Diamonds Are Forever, everything goes off the fucking rails. Like, I, I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about that movie because it's fucking bonkers. But um, the cat is such a weird choice. Like, you've got this guy who's very clearly this cold, calculating, evil person. And he's like, let me pet a kitty. <laughs> like, it's just kind of like... It's a support animal. Yeah, it's emotional a old-timey emotional support animal for him doing his terrible spy game kind of uh, tactics and whatever. Again, it just shows that his hands actually work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's the whole point. They're just like, we, all we need to make sure is we know we got a guy with hands. So let's just show his hands. And then that's it. <laughs> you know? Um. We're also introduced to Rosa Klebb. Rosa Klebb is great. Uh, she is just this, like, hard-faced raisin of a woman <laughs> that, like, you get this feeling that she got chewed up and spit out and figured out a way to rise her way through the ranks and everything. She's a bitch. And, yeah, but in the best way. Yeah, like she, I fucking love her character so much. She is one of my favorite villains in the whole franchise. Oh yeah, she was the strongest villain out of this entire movie by far. She, um, th- she was the one that really weaved the narrative together because she was the one that was originally part of the, uh, like the Russian uh, Smurf. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, so she's the one that can get uh, Tatiana uh, to like get involved in this entire scheme unknowingly to her because she thinks that she's working for the Russians and obviously she's at uh, clever working for Spectre instead. She's very vicious. She's very, I love the bit where she's like, she's terrified. I know this is getting like towards the end, but I know we're flying around away with the place, but we're towards the end where she thinks that she's going to get killed by uh, number one. And so she's terrified, but then she sees the thing happen. And so she knows that she's got one more opportunity. So yeah, she's a very, very, like vicious. Oh, actually, my favorite part of her is that when she uses the brass knuckles on Dent mm-hmm. in the training center, like she just punches him in the gut with some brass knuckles just to make sure that he can. He's unflinching towards pain and stuff like that. So, yeah, he'll do. Yeah. That's <laughs> great, great villain. Like, and I believe the uh, inspiration for Frau from mm-hmm. Austin Powers. Yeah, Frau Farbessina, the open the doors kind of woman. <laughs> She is also a character that they try to replicate with another character down the line and they don't do as well. Irma Bunt just doesn't uh, land as well as Rosa Klebb does. And um, I've always been curious about this uh, opinion. I, I see some people that are like, oh, this is a guarantee. And some people that are like, what the hell are you talking about? So do you guys think that she's a lesbian? I don't know if it necessarily matters, but I It doesn't I really so. matter, but it's just one of those things I've I've seen people argue about. I think I think a lot of people will get that from the interaction that she has earlier on with Tatiana. Like her first interaction with Tatiana that we see. It's very I I'm, I'm not saying that it's like she's strictly a lesbian, but I'm not saying that she doesn't use those sort of tactics to intimidate other women. I see a lot of people that try to make the argument that because she says you're a fine looking woman, that that means that she's a lesbian. And it's like, that's not necessarily true. Like, you I can appreciate the, the beauty that... of, you know, somebody without having that as your sexual preference or anything. Yeah, I, I think it's the idea that, and again, this is maybe just of the time and maybe this is just my perspective. 
But I think it's the idea of well, the the, the main role of Bond women Bond girls in this period of time is that they're very attractive. Um, yeah, yeah, mainly just like very attractive, very just into Bond, obviously straight away and stuff like that. The fact that she is not very attractive, she's old, she's yeah, she's of that. She's she's not a typical of like what you'd expect for a Bond girl or a femme fatale character, and so people just say, okay, she's a lesbian then. Right. It's kind of yeah. just... Um... And also, it's probably the fact that she's a woman in power as well. And so people just shoot, oh, she's a woman in power. She clearly yeah. is like, <laughs> she's clearly a lesbian. And that's yeah. Right. Like, Bond doesn't bet her. She doesn't try to seduce Bond. She's not typically attractive. All this other kind of stuff. So people are like, oh, she's gay then. And it's like, I- I've never liked that philosophy of that. Like, the, there's nothing at all that points in that direction for the character. And there's nothing that, like it wouldn't matter at all to the story. So for anybody who's wondering, well, quite frankly, I'm surprised given some of the other things in this movie and this franchise bond didn't try to seduce her. Like, yeah, my penis can solve your problem. <laughs> <laughs> it works for Tatiana. Uh, well, let's talk about Tatiana. Cause um, we get introduced to her with that whole idea of uh, Rosa interviewing her. She talks that she's, um, she used to be in the ballet, but she grew over regulation height, which I thought is a funny kind of line. And she is set up, I think, in a great way where she has no idea what's going on. Um, as far as she knows, Rosa Klebb is this great smirsh general, and she's just got this task of like, hey, you know, we're in the spy game. You need to be a spy instead of just like a clerk or whatever. You need to seduce this agent. And uh, you need to do this whole thing with this lector and whatever. Of course, she has no idea about Spectre whatsoever, because why would she know? That's what Spectre is all about. And I like the the interaction that she has where um, Kleb's like, you know, you've had a couple of lovers. And what, I, uh, what do you think about um, like this whole scenario? And she's like, well, you know, if he's nice and whatever. And <laughs> she's just sort of like, well, you're going to you're going to fuck him or you're dead. And she's like. Okay then, <laughs> you know, kind of like I guess that'll happen. Uh, yeah, that's a great Bond girl. You know, fits the time perfectly. I thought she was pretty attractive. Uh, pretty dumb by the end of it, but like, yeah, guess, that happens to a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I really, really despise that character. <laughs> I, I'm I, not it's, it's not that I despise the girl or anything like that. It's just the fact that she was so without any initiative whatsoever until the, like the very very end when she like she helps bond but the issue is that they don't tell a story of her falling in love with bond yeah they skip that they really really just overplay she's like she's in love with him basically from the the first night they're together from that point onward she's very very just over the top of everything and maybe that was just originally her acting but they don't show the point where it transitions from her just acting to seduce Bond by because of, under her orders by the Russians and um and then actually falling in love with him. It's very, very, very loose. Well, and so it's... I can't I can't get invested in her character because her character is again like um like Hun- Honey Rider in the previous one. She's essentially just a body. It's the sixties though. They they probably yeah, were genuinely I... like of course she fell in love with him. We don't need to give you a reason. Attraction I understand, is love. I, I understand like, the context of the time, but it doesn't mean that I have to like it. Yeah. That's it's fair. They're missing at least two scenes. Yeah. 
they need a scene where she goes oh wait like this guy's like i actually kind of like this guy and then they need a scene where they do something to transition it as oh no i'm falling in love with this guy yeah exactly i mean i know you say like it's the 60s and again these bond girls in that point in time weren't given a huge amount of character death but it's not like no movies in the 1960s or before had female characters that had absolutely no like had no character development or no real story behind them or anything like that other movies were doing it so i'm not going to give the bond movies a pass just because we're supposed to think oh bond girls are just there to be hot and sleep with bond and that's it i don't know i kind of feel like in this era they were maybe that well maybe they were for the bond movies but that means that's for me is a negative for the movies i'm not going I... to say, i'm not going to say along the lines of oh but okay so that's what they intended to do at that point so okay i'll give it a pass then it's still it's awful to me it's terrible <laughs> nah, i agree i agree i don't mind i don't mind the bond girls being used for like they're, them being attractive and them also like sleeping in bond and stuff like that i don't mind them that being obviously a huge part of what their character is evolved but i'd like to see a character apart from that side of it as well yeah this same sort of character like the same vibe is done better in other movies i think um they have a scene the the first initial seduction scene where she pops into the room and she's naked and she's under the bed uh sheets and everything that is actually a scene that they use when they're auditioning new bonds all the time like they've done that over the years they're just like do the scene from from us with love and they try to see who has great chemistry with different um, actresses and everything. Oh, can I tell you who doesn't? Sean Connery. <laughs> you mean you don't think, uh, you don't buy into the line, I think my mouth is too big? Oh, it's just the right size. For me, that is. <laughs> it's terrible. What, it's yeah. Just, just, it's just throughout the entire thing, they have zero chemistry with each other. But you don't get any impression that they're actually in love with each other. That's good for one scene, though. I really like when he's got the uh, camera and he's like, you know, tell me about the, uh, the lector and whatever. And she's like, oh, like, well, you just want to talk about that. And he's like, no, no, like we're eventually, we're not going to be on company time. Like, let's just talk about that for now. And then later on, well, whatever. And, um, she goes, <laughs> I wrote the lines down. Cause I, I laughed uh, a lot at it. She's like, the mechanism is, Oh, James, James, will you make love to me all the time in England? And he goes, day and night, go on about the mechanism. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was good in that one. Go on, it's just a case. I love that. He's like, yeah, 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 I'll fuck you a lot. Anyway, so talk about the lecture. Well, I, I kind of get that because he's on task. Like like we said earlier, like he knows this is a trap and he thinks that she's part of the trap. She, Well, he initially thinks that she's part of Spectre. Right. So he's just going along with it because he he knows that he can deal with her if she does try and turn him down the line but it's just a case of i don't see what she, like again you don't see the part where either of them start to feel something different about it so yeah that that that's where, why i think it's a weak relationship well he actually he doesn't know about specter until the towards the end but he knows something's up and he's like all right the russians are trying to screw us that kind of thing so he's just flat there's no reason for him to think that she's positive in any way because she's definitely a russian agent later on he's got other russian agents that he'll kind of have a similar vibe to just like well you're the russians so whatever but they, i like what they do in these movies for the time where it's like yeah the russians are the bad guys according to the british mentality around then but we're not gonna make them the bad guys necessarily 
Like, there's going to be bad Russians, and there's bad Brits, and there's bad Americans, and there's bad whatever. But, like, it's not just, oh, Bond takes down Russia every movie. Spectre's in there. And at the end of the day, with this one, Tatiana, she is a villain at the beginning of it, because she's just a Russian agent. So by the fact of being a different country, um, she's, you know, against him. But at no point in the movie is she actually a villain because we know from the start that she's not a part of the plan. So she's kind of like, you don't worry about that. She's going to turn on him at any point, you know, I guess that's kind of a positive, kind of a negative. Cause then you don't have to have the whole like, Oh, what's going to happen next? You know, it's not going to happen, you know, um, other Bond girls, we got the return of Sylvia Trench. She I thought this was good. Was supposed to originally be in practically every movie. They were going to make her this running gag where Bond perpetually just keeps going back to Sylvia and called away. Like how in this one, it's I'll be there in an hour. We make that an hour and a half. I'm just reviewing an old case. <laughs> uh, and they just decided to, nah, let's just cut it at that one. Just make it two. I like Sylvia. And I wouldn't have minded if she would have been in more movies. Particularly Tomorrow Never Dies. There's a part we'll get into that. We get into that movie. But um, what do you guys think about Sylvia returning? I thought it was good and I thought it was very funny. And Money Penny's lines made it all the better. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that she's um, like his consistent side piece back at home and then he goes out to all these foreign places and he just sleeps with everyone that he sees and then comes back and he doesn't stick around with the girls too long is i was going to ask this because obviously i didn't do too much like further looking into so he has a scar on his body Mm -hmm. did honey do that to him it's implied because um because it seems like he left yeah because they because obviously she brings up the fact that he went to jamaica so it's clearly there's obviously the the run from dr no into this one so I would have thought that Bond just decided to leave at some point and Honey just gave him like a nick when he was going and then he's just got a scar on his body now because of that. Yeah, she says something about um something about the scar or whatever. Um and he he said he mentions I forget the line exactly, but he says something about that he's never gonna turn his back on a woman again. <laughs> so it's kinda like, yeah, Honey Rider is just like, Where the fuck are you going? and stabs him, I guess, which is Kind of an unceremonious way to write off the last Bond girl. Just Bond sleeps with her, leaves, and she's old news. And, you know, he goes back for Sylvia, but he just leaves, honey. Well, yeah, to be fair, she is based in Jamaica, so I guess yeah. it's slightly. <laughs> That's true. Maybe slightly challenging. Um, Introducing more characters and going back to same elements and everything like that, we've got. For my next miracle, I, where Bond throws his hat again, and he sees Money Penny and M glaring at him, and this does a lot of the uh, the character work that we'll see going on of like Bond being just this, you know, showman kind of arrogant jerk, and Money Penny and M just being like, oh, God damn it, like yeah, kind of. Again, love Money Penny, love M. Only positives for me on those ends. Yeah, they were great. They um, they they play their roles particularly well in like just explaining the situation. Their relationship with Bond is consistent from the two movies. 
So Money Penny, they still have that light-hearted flirting, but it is obviously clearly more of a friendship side of things. And M is still, obviously, again, there's still that respect there, but he's still obviously getting a little bit under M's skin, and skin, and M is still trying to trying to control him more than like Bond ever wants to be controlled. The line "Money Penny, I'll never look at another woman" was the funniest line in the movie to me, <laughs> just because we know who he is. And we get introduced to uh, actual Q, not Major Boothroyd from the last movie. It's Desmond Llewellyn who would go on to play the character in, I think it's 17 Bond films, all the way through uh, The World's Not Enough. He is one of the most amazing parts of this franchise. I miss Desmond Llewellyn's Q so much. I do like the new Q that we have um, as, as something different, but... I absolutely love Q and we don't get like proper Q until the next movie, but he is a major step up and the gadget in this is a major step up obviously too. Cause last movie we had a gun. <laughs> Whereas with this one, we've get this, uh, this briefcase that has this delightfully simple and useful methodology to it, where it, you know, if you open it up the wrong way, which the way that normally people would open up a briefcase, it's got this tear gas canister that'll go off, which is magnetically attached. You've got the 50 gold sovereigns, which I always thought was a really weird thing to add into there. Why does he need 50 gold sovereigns? I guess if he ever needs to barter yeah. with somebody or yeah. like get involved in a casino game, a high stakes casino game or something like that. It's a weird thing for me. Cause it's like, Here's a tear gas canister, and here's a knife, and here's a foldable, collapsible rifle, and here's some money. <laughs> like that's just always struck well, me as weird. The actual reason for it is that it's needed for the final scene. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, scene, so yeah, so. But I love um, this little gadget. This is a big, big thumbs up for me. You know, what I I love the most out of anything with these gadgets, especially with everything that's Q, Q's involved. And obviously, I haven't watched all the Bond movies, but one thing I'm looking forward to is the phrase that he always would would start this off with, which is a simple, ordinary briefcase. It's just the <laughs> idea of like say like just say like oh, it just seems like a simple, ordinary briefcase. But wait, there's like there's ammunition in the bottom of it, and there's a knife inside of it. And if you open it the wrong way, it's going to explode in your face and all that. And the best part about looking at this, knowing that it's a bomb movie, is just waiting to see all of those different elements being used throughout the movie. And they kind of all get really saved until the final fight with Den, like most of them do. But there's still little bits and pieces of it, like scattered around the movie. With Grant, you mean? Oh, Grant, sorry, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the briefcase was nice. It's simple. You know, it comes in handy at the end. And obviously, they build upon it in the future. But for this one movie, I think this was perfect. And we haven't quite gotten into the range yet of we do in the next movie of the like Bond and Q kind of playing around with each other sort of thing. You know, the uh, bring this back in pristine order kind of line that we usually get. But this is the start of a better relationship because there's just more chemistry between Desmond Llewellyn and Connery. And then Desmond Llewellyn more and Dalton and you know everybody else that goes along with this. Um, so, I mean, that's we don't see too much other stuff when it comes to the, the gadget side of things. We'll loop back around to that. But um, 
going through some different notes of mine that I've got here. Uh, we get a, a retelling of that whole shot of from uh, Dr. No, where he comes into the airport and he's clearly being followed or whatever. And we set up this idea of this code phrase of, uh, can I borrow uh, uh, something to light my lighter? Oh, uh, the matches and everything. Uh, I use a lighter. Oh, that's better still. Well, until it fails. And later on in the movie, there's this really good thing that I really, really like that I didn't catch back in the days, you know, just when I wasn't like, you know, I was younger and not paying attention to little things. I love that you get that set up, you get a reintroduction of it later on with some other people, and you get this good payoff where Grant is on the train and he's being reflected in the window and you can hear, you can see that he can hear Bond and the other agent doing this exchange so that way later on you don't have to hear the dialogue but you know that grant is doing that same exchange taking over that agent uh, spot and then doing the same thing to bond i really really like that touch i thought that, that was really well uh well done yeah it shows that he's obviously intelligent uh like grant knows what knows that he can pick up on this subtle um exchange between Bond and some other people that obviously agents or at least like people that have have a similar relationship and so he can use it against them so obviously the main thing about Grant is that he is incredibly strong and tough and so that's like he's a physical match for Bond but he's also intelligent and sneaky and he's very calculating with his own kills he does in the movie as well in order to like carry out the plan that they've uh, that Spectre have put together to the letter. Any thoughts on that, uh, Rob? Oh, no, I, I got worried there. I thought my connection died. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I agree with Callum. Like, it's just all of this coming together. I like the development of the code phrase. I like how we're going to start to be rewarded for paying attention to more details. It's, like I said, for me, as my first viewing of the second bump, Bond film after just watching Dr. No for the first time, this was like leagues better. They're talking about better. We got to talk about Karim Bay. The best part of this entire movie. He's so good. He is so, he's like, he's funny. He's charismatic. You feel that he's an equal to Bond in every way, really. They do a few like scenes early on where he seems like his life is under danger, but he doesn't die. So that's obviously a good start for what happens later but you you feel i feel watching i felt connected to him in the way that i didn't feel connected to quarrel because quarrel was just like again it was just a prop really i mean he was a nice guy but he was mainly just like used as a prop whereas this guy feels like a fully fleshed out character yeah a lot of fun with with this character i really just i got a kick out of watching him interact with Bond and it's just been really strange for me to see how there's a lot of cheekiness in these films I guess going into stuff like this you just expect explosions and sex and not as much of the cheekiness but I really have enjoyed a lot of these elements especially because these movies are pretty long by the time I got to the end of this one I was like a lot has developed 
and we're still, you know, 20 minutes out, and I still feel like we haven't wrapped up everything yet. So some notes about uh, Karim Bey. Uh, he is uh, his actor. This is one of those unfortunate scenarios where um, he died right after making this film because he had cancer during this film. They were he was part of a, a movie called The Conqueror in the fifties. Oh, is that the that's the um, the John Wayne one, isn't it? Yeah, okay. that movie filmed in Utah where they had done these nuclear tests and yeah. they had transported all this radioactive sand and dirt and whatever, not having any idea that this was just riddled with radiation. 41% of the people that worked on that movie, 91 people in total, died at some point from cancer that they developed from that film. Which is just absolutely terrible. And he knew that he was dying when they were filming this and they were going to recast him. And he had said, like, please let me finish doing this film. I want this to be my last movie and I want to make sure that I've got this money for my family. So there's like scenes where he's bright and lively and the dude's on his deathbed, which is like all that more of a testament to be like, damn, what a good actor, you know, like, yeah, he was so good. Wow, that's that's tragic. He died before I think the film had even uh, been released, if I remember correctly. And uh, his son plays a character in a different movie as a means to be like, hey, like, you know, your dad was like, great. Let's bring you into the mix. He's in um, License to Kill. He plays. Uh, uh, well, we're going to do it when we get into that. Yeah. But um, yeah, real sad about that. Uh He's such a great character in so many ways. I love the uh the his mistress or whatever, just like Ali Karimbe, like come here, like fuck me. And he's just like, ah, all right. And then he narrowly uh my uh ditches no, not ditches. Um oh my god, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um escapes the uh the limpet mine. He's got these good little quips here and there. He's this fun kind of character he mentions uh, i i made a joke about it at the beginning of this when uh, they're in the train and he's got the guy tied up and he's like i've had a fascinating life would you like to hear about it the guy's just like Ugh, and he goes oh you would ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, great uh great supporting character that's really yeah. sad now that you mentioned that and also scary that they just played around with radiation like that they're just like we need more dirt just get it from that place <laughs> as we as we saw from Doctor No, they had absolutely no idea what radiation actually did. This yeah. time, so. No, it could not just be washed off. Yeah. <laughs> just just yeah. shower a little bit longer, extra ten seconds to wash off. Yeah. It did. It did the perfect thing that you can do with any supporting character, especially in the Bond movies, is that it made you care about when he died. Yeah. You, know, you hate the guy that killed him, and that's right. just like what you wanted. That's what you want to get out of it. It's the thing, like I said about the quarrels thing. It's just like. I didn't. I felt somewhat sympathetic for him when he obviously like dies in that movie, but this one it just felt like, oh my god, I really enjoyed this character, and I I hate the fact that Gron took him away from us because it's very obvious that Gron is the one that kills him when they cause the, in the yeah. way that they shoot it, so they they don't leave it any room for interpretation, which in one way is good. I th I actually think that was a benefit of that. Thing. Yeah, the uh, the train. Uh, I don't know what you would call him. He's not the train conductor, but the uh, guy, the attendant, whatever. Yeah. 
um, he's like, oh, they killed each other. And it's like, yeah, well, one's got a knife in his back. I wish that didn't happen. <laughs> but sure, why not? You know, um, let's talk about the gypsy girl fight. Uh, <laughs> that's... Oh, I you talk about how they, how they settle things in the gypsy way. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, one of those elements that doesn't quite hold up as well in some ways because, I mean, different cultures do things differently, sure. But they set this up as these two women are in love with this one guy and they're going to fight to determine who gets them. And it turns into this whole big action sequence, which has this uh, song, the 007 song, that's not the main Bond theme that happens in some different movies. And I hate it. That bum, 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 I hate that song so much. Um, and then it ends up being Bond's like, oh, can you, um, because he saves the guy's life that runs this whole gypsy, uh, camp tribe. Yeah. Um, and he's like, you know, uh, can you stop the girl fight? And he's like, yeah, okay. You, you pick. So it's kind of implied that they double team bond. <laughs> like he has a threesome with the two women that are in love with this other guy. And uh. <laughs> I mean that's it. I mean that's it. I mean that's what would you expect? Anything else from this? Uh, <laughs> but what did I just say earlier? Bond's magic penis. It it, it does the trick. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have to just like look at this whole situation, which is, I mean, they they originally like they they drive to the gypsy compound or camp or whatever you want to call it, and they think that then because they're going there, they're not being tailed, and they are being tailed by the Russians. Or well, yeah, so it's um it's a it's Benz, is it? Not Benz. It's a, it's it's one of these other like paid assassins they have, and so they they go into the gypsy compound. They have this like like good three to five minute belly dance sequence, which is just there to titillate people, and then and then it just turns into a war zone, and it's like, I I don't ever imagine Bond being in these circumstances. It just feels weird because he's a secret agent. Like, what secret agent actually goes into open warfare and it's just like that, like shooting people with guns all over the place where there's like fire flying around and all that other stuff. It just felt so Lord of the Rings, not James <laughs> Bond, really. Oh, he shoots and his then, gun way more times than his gun has the capacity for. Well, just the idea of like how how many people does he actually like? Do we see him kill in Doctor No? It's like about like. Like half a dozen, maybe at most. Uh, maybe look up that like information. Like, but they're all like they're all s- split out a little bit. And it's all li- like every kill kind of matters almost. Whereas this one, he's just shooting people randomly, just shooting random Russian henchmen, and it just feels like it doesn't feel like what I'd expect Bond to do. I expect like obviously the gypsies to fight to defend their land and stuff like that. But Bond's just right in the middle of it, just shooting people. And he also he seems to kill a few gypsies as well because he doesn't really seem to care about what he's doing, <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, why? Well, like, like there's one point where he like, yeah, which is that, that one point where he sets fire to one of the caravans and then he just pushes it towards just a group of people, which is a mixture <laughs> of both gypsies and Russians, and just like okay, Bond just doesn't as long as he survives, it doesn't matter. So in Doctor No, according to theguardian.com. Bond kills four people, and in Frost of Love, he kills 11. Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit right, of like... More than double. It, yeah. It's, a bit, which, it's actually double O plus and seven more. Yeah. There you go. Uh, looking at this list, this is just a little bit of interesting things. Um, this is a good indicator of how things change over time. So he kills four in the first film, uh, 11 in the second one. He kills nine in Goldfinger, 20 in Thunderball, only five... 
eventually in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you get up to a point where he kills 47 in GoldenEye. <laughs> That's the highest amount. Wow. Not the highest amount of deaths per film, though. That is, you only live twice, oddly enough. Um, if you count that uh, full, like, everybody kills people, not just Bond kills. Uh, apparently, in You Only Live Twice, 175 people die. Wow. That's crazy. Jesus. Pretty sure I know which uh, which scene that is, but we'll get to that in a couple movies. Yeah. Um, but, but, but like you say, essentially, there's this big gypsy, the gypsy fight, and they win it, and Bond gets to decide which one of the girls should rightfully marry this uh, marry the um, if it was like the chief's son or something like that, and then she's he decides well there's only one way to settle it that's who fucks me best and then she just and then we just see him being like um, patched up by them and then he leaves and we have no idea who he chose. He doesn't care. He won. We do. We just established this. Well, the um, isn't it that shot uh where they're leaving? I think like one of the women is standing next to. Um, thing. I think it might be like one of them gets picked or something. I don't remember for sure. Yeah, I hope, I'm guessing he was cool with the whole uh, circumstances there as well. Yeah, just uh, do bang these other uh, this other guy, and then he can let me know which one I should have as a wife or something. One of the um, women in that uh, the gypsy girl fight is Martine Beswick. The actress's name. She's uh, erroneously referred to as Martin Beswick in the uh, credits, and she returns in Thunderball as a different character. And I like uh, I like Martine, um, beautiful woman. Uh, she's way better in Thunderball, by the way. Here's a random note that I have: uh, Bond eats uh, green figs, yogurt, and very black coffee, which is just disgusting to me. I don't want any of that. Yeah, well, I mean it's okay. It's like a, it's I guess it's fitting of the um, location, like around about like Turkey, Greece area. That's kind of the stuff that you would be eating. So it's 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 culturally fitting. Ugh, not my fan. Uh, but would you eat it, Gala? I wouldn't eat it, no. But like, okay. I wouldn't go to Turkey either. So just... <laughs> I'd be like, can you replace the green figs with a different type of fruit and the yogurt with something else, like eggs and uh, pancakes and whatever, and replace the black coffee with orange juice? <laughs> just terrible. Um, but we get a thing here that we should talk about that uh, is on the music side of things. Um, the Bond theme playing again when it shouldn't be playing, where he's snooping around for bugs in the hotel room and it's just not the right tone. No. I mean, we didn't really even talk too much about the opening theme, about the actual like music that was playing for it, because it's just another instrumental. Yeah, instrumental version of the From Russia With Love theme, which comes back at the end. Yeah, and it's just like, mm, just not... Again, it's not, there's nothing hugely wrong with it, but it's just it's hard to be iconic when there's no lyrics attached to it. But you do get the first real indications of the what would be the running trope for these opening sequences, which is just shots of women and the credits rolling across their bodies. That's basically that's basically what the Bond thing would be up until Daniel Craig really takes over. Yeah, for the uh, most part. Yeah, but I like it though. It, it's exactly what the character has always been in my mind, so it works. Another quick note that I've got. Uh, once when I was with M in Tokyo, we had an interesting experience. Thank you, Miss Money Penny, the end of the all. <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, 
I like uh, with uh, Tanya, as she likes to be called, not Tatiana. Uh, their cover story, they've got um, that they're a married couple. And she's like, well, we don't have any kids. And he's like, no. And she's like, well, not even a little boy. And he's just like, yet. He's <laughs> like, no, I'm not having a fucking kid with you. Um, eventually, we lead to the point where uh, we're in on the train. We're on the Orient Express. It's this big, um, you know, everybody knows the Orient Express. You want to talk about the five-minute train montage that we get? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lots of trains. I, I, okay. The, these movies are good, but they are far, far too long. I, I really do feel like some things can be shaved off. And this would be one of them. I don't understand why we're just dragging these movies out. Maybe that was just a thing back in the 60s. Because I know some American movies have these issues as well, where it's just, why do all these things need to be two hours long? We could shave half an hour. I think they're relishing in the locale type of thing. Hmm. Where, because that's that's a draw for some of these movies back then, where it's like, oh, he's on the Orient Express. Let's show you the Orient Express. He's in Turkey. Let's show you this kind of thing. Let's have discussions about grilled soul, which I felt like eating um, fish afterwards. I ended up getting tilapia, or um, yeah, tilapia the other day. (laughs) So it's just like, well, there's no grilled soul, but I'll have tilapia instead. Yeah, so they get to the point where we obviously talked about earlier where um, Grant gets onto the train because he takes out the agent that's supposed to be meeting Bond. Um, I can't remember what city. Was, was it Belgrade? Or was that past that point? Uh, I'm blanking on which one. Yeah, it's well, essentially, it's, 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 it's in an Eastern Bloc uh, city. And obviously Grant gets on, he pretends to be um, as, as another British uh, agent based in that city. And they do the bit where they like go to dinner instead. And he orders conspicuously to Bond this fact that he orders red wine with the fish. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just like the big, like, that's a real cultural no-no, really. You never order red wine with fish. But the reason why he does it is very, well, from what I my perspective want to see, it, it's quite ingenious. It's the fact that he's going to drug uh, Tanya's drink. And so he wants to make sure there's no chance that he accidentally takes a drink of his own. So if he's got a red glass and mm-hmm. they've got a white one, it means that he can tell that he'll ne- he'll, he won't drink it accidentally or anything on those lines. Yeah, it's a really good little subtle thing going on there. Yeah. So he's an intelligent guy. And he overplays this part with the, like, old man, whatever. Oh, here you are, old man, yeah. whatever. I like the switch up, too, where Bond doesn't trust him and then he does. And then that's his um, downfall. Is he's just like, all right, like, what? How did you drug the girl? Would you give her whatever? And he's like, yeah, well, my ex- my escape plan only has the two of us. You know, she's a Russian agent. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, he thinks yeah. that she's respects her at this point. So he's like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we're, let's screw over the Russian girl because she's trying to screw us over and whatever. And then he lets his guard down for just a second, and that's when Grant clocks him over the back of the head. And what did he hit him with? His uh, gun. Yeah, okay, just, that's what I thought. Yeah, just the handle of his gun. Yeah. And I do like the little switch up of Bond being held at gunpoint, and they do the whole thing of, like, the monologue, you know, let me tell you the whole plan because you can appreciate it before I kill you kind of a thing. But I like when he oversells the part of, like, I can give you uh this money for this, whatever. We can pay you double and whatever, and I'll 
give you these 50 gold sovereigns or whatever. Yeah, I have more in my briefcase. I'll just get it real quick. And he's like, no, no, no. I'll open it because, like, you're really excited to open up this briefcase that probably has some kind of a trap. I'll do it. And that's the trap. It's like, damn, that's good. You know? Very good. He has a clever way of doing it. So they have their uh, fight sequence. Um, so much better than any fight sequence in Doctor No. Yeah, this yeah, is great. This, this was the part where I said, I audibly said, oh shit, because it was just a really, really intense fight sequence. And for a minute, Bond is actually struggling. You know, and hey, maybe he's not as infallible. This is one of those things that they try to replicate in other movies here and there. You can kind of tell by some of the camera cuts and stuff like that, that there's probably, it's probably not the same actors doing everything when they're, because you just see like shots of the the back of their heads and stuff like that. So, you know, that's like a stuntman's been brought in or like a a trained fighter has been brought in to try and make it look a lot more realistic, but it's still, it fits together very well. No, uh, no camera cut is as egregious as the one in the beginning of Dr. No. So that's an improvement <laughs> right there. Actually, I think there's only one shot that's not them. All right. Yeah. I don't remember which shot it is, but I, I kind of remember hearing something about that, that like that they wanted to do that and that it's oh. mostly them. Maybe it was just like an assumption and stuff like that, just because like when I assume that I see like just the shots of the back of their heads and stuff like that, I just assume well, they must have traded out. Here yeah. Otherwise, they would show their faces because that's kind of seems to be a, the rule in cinema at the very least. I think the only it might be the shot where like one of them gets flipped or something because obviously that's more of a stuntman thing. But yeah, this is a great little just like it's high stakes, but it's a low environment. And in other movies, we're going to see these like giant explosions and the cars all over the place and a thousand people shooting at Bond or whatever. And this is just two guys fighting in a little carriage and it ends up landing pretty damn well compared to a lot of these other more bombastic things. See, but I almost prefer this because it's really, you know, mano a mano, like I'm going to take you down and I'm going to prove that, you know, you're not as great as you think you are. I like the part where he says, you know, I enjoyed manipulating you and watching the great James Bond run around like a fool. It seems very personal, even though it's not. And I think that's something you can only get when it's a one-on-one fight. Yeah, there's more character when it's the two people rather than if it's two people shooting at each other from far away and making it like less personable. But he kills Grant. Uh, and then here's one of my flaws about the film on the action side of things. That feels like the end of the movie. It should be the end. That that's be- what I was. That's what I was saying. Like I looked at the time and it, there was still 20 minutes to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't mind the thing they do in the Venice Hotel with Cleb. We'll talk about yeah. it a little that, That's a nice little, just like, a little just, not to say funny, but it's a little, like, just a little extra added thing at the end of it where you just think, oh, my God, there's just one final twist. But the stuff they throw in here just feels like, okay, we've doubled our budget from the previous year. What the fuck can we think of to put at the end of this movie <laughs> to make it really ex- exciting and dramatic at the end? You'll have, like, helicopters and boat chases yeah. and this other stuff. It just it just feels like it's, it, it's unnecessary. It's gratuitous almost. It I think that they should have had, like, for instance, the helicopter scene 
like if that's I mean that shouldn't even really be in it necessarily, but like the boat chase or the helicopter scene should have came before they got on the train. Like the train should be the oh we've gotten past the the hurdles oh crap Grant is here kind of a thing as opposed yeah. to being like well we got rid of the bad guy now we just need to go through these extra little things to get to the end because you're like all right well he's just gonna blow up the helicopter he's just gonna blow up the boat it's whatever you know it was just the levels of absurdity of it when the, the, the helicopter's dropping grenades on top of a flower truck and the flower truck doesn't go up and the fact that Tony's in the back completely exposed to all this fire that's going around and she's completely untouched afterwards and then and then for some reason, like even though it seems like they've been dropping grenades and they've got some sort of ammunition on the helicopter, they decide to just try and gore him with the helicopter repeatedly. It's just like <laughs> helicopter just flying low, just trying to knock James Bond out with the actual thing, and then go to drop the grenade and he snipes the uh, guy. The grenade drops into the helicopter. They blow up the helicopter. So I guess this was just an excuse to say, okay, we can blow up a helicopter in this movie. That's great. Yeah, I I agree with you guys. This is um the the stuff at the end with Cleb. I like that. Very good. That she has yeah. this little thing where she's trying to steal the lector just as like she's proposing as a maid and um These... yeah, she's got uh she's just going to grab it and walk away. <laughs> like it's as simple as can be. But what's this thing about this venom-tipped boot knife? That's what I've dubbed it, essentially. <laughs> it's just like, because they show the thing of, um, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the number Kronstein. five. Yeah, Kronstein getting killed by uh, one of uh, Doc's... Doc, uh, by Morrisoni, who's on the boat. Yeah. They cut oh, yeah. re- really weird. <laughs> it doesn't really yeah, make a lot of like, sense. Yeah, he's got a knife on the end of his boot, and he just kicks him in the shin with it, and it's got venom on it, and that's what kills him. And so uh, Cleb puts it on, or wears her own version of it, and tries to repeatedly kick a bond while he's holding her against the thing with the chair yeah and then then even though tanya has already like stopped cleb and she's not the gun out of her hand when she she's still trying to decide who the fuck she should yeah yeah, exactly it's Mm -hmm. really weird that like that last moment she's having another crisis of conscience yeah that's that could have been done better but i do like it uh it's it's got a funny line too where bond just is like oh she had her kicks and whatever (laughs) just one of those like okay you're bond that's funny. Um, I heard that, and I went. Uh, Tony likes that. That's that's a Tony. Not my um, not my favorite Bond quip of the, yeah, the movie. Yeah, that, that felt quite weak, weak to me. But um, it's it's one of those silly types of things. Like, why is that a thing? Why why do they have that sticking out? Whatever. And they reference it in another movie too. Um, I like the shoe. I thought the shoe was like it, again. It's cheeky, but that's been kind of the fun for me with these movies because. They are a product of their time, and it's just like, I know, I'm a spy, I'll just have this, you know, knife in my shoe that I can just kick you with. I do like, as far as on the gadget side of things with the shoe, I like how Blofeld is disappointed in that it takes a few seconds to kill Kronstein. seconds, and he's like, alright, we need to tighten that up. <laughs> yeah, I like that part quite a bit. It's like, oh, we gotta figure out a faster Venom for that, that took way too long to kill Kronstein. <laughs> it's like... mm. And uh, the movie ends with um, Bond tossing the film of the two of them having sex in the uh, uh, river or whatever it is. And um, we got the actual theme of the film uh, from Rush With Love by Matt Monroe, which I really, really love. Very good. 
Yeah, I'd, I can't say that I paid a huge amount of attention to it because by the time the credits were on, I saw the credits, I kind of felt like just getting out. <laughs> Not so much that I didn't enjoy it, stuff like that, but I just see the credits. I've been watching it for two hours. I kind of just want to move on at that point. It would have been better if they would have swapped it with the instrumental at the beginning of it, mm. which they, they learned their lesson and they don't tend to, uh, tend to do that anymore. Although they do do it with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but that's a different story. Yeah. but I uh, did want to say uh, with Club's death, the one bit of overacting I could have done without is her dying because she just overacts a little too much. But other than that, I thought, again, vast improvement over the utter fucking trash that the <laughs> first one was. Now that I've seen the second one, I can already say, like, yeah, the first one was absolutely, like, too much, too excessive, too everything. This was a much more cleaned up version in some ways and a much more excessive in others. Like I still want to get to the part where we shave time off of these movies. Tony spoils something for me right now. Are we going to shave time off of these movies or is this pretty much status quo? Well, uh, the Craig films get a lot longer. The Craig films are, are better though. It's there's, some of them are shorter, some of them are, are longer. It's, um, I forget the average time, but Goldfinger, for instance, is an hour and 50 minutes. Um, we got five minutes off. <laughs> some of them are, they're, they're range around two hours, usually. Okay. Uh, Thunderball is two hours and 12. Fuck me. Um, <laughs> Wonder Majesty's Secret Service is two hours and 22. What with fucking George Lazenby? Well, where was George Lazenby for two hours and twenty-three minutes? <laughs> That's one of the reasons why it's one of my least favorites. Apparently, No Time to Die is going to be two hours and forty-three minutes. I mean, I'm all for. I mean, that's what modern you movies know. are nowadays. It's like yeah. it kind of comes with the territory. The quickest is Quantum of Solace, and that's because they didn't have writers on that movie, and it shows. <laughs> but, uh, let's recap these uh, these seven parts because um, we've gone through the film. Um, on the girl side of things, uh, we've got uh, eh, Cleb. You can't really constitute. She's more just on the villain side. But um, we've got Tatiana. We got the um, the gypsies. We've got Sylvia Trench. We got Money Penny. Uh, there are better ones, but there are worse ones. I like Tatiana, but she could have been written a little bit better. And I like Trench popping back up, but yeah, you know, bit part kind of thing. Overall, I, what are you guys thinking about uh, Tanya? Thumbs up for me. I thought she was great. I, she's a bit of an airhead and, like Callum said, unmotivated toward until the very, very end. But I thought she fit the bill as a Bond girl very well. And I was a big fan of the Gypsies, so uh, thumbs up for me. Yeah, it's, it's a significant thumbs down for me on this side of it. It's no initiative, no character no real purpose other than i mean she, she i think she, the issue is that the whole crux of the movie is based around her relationship with bond and i think that that is the weakest part of the entire movie and if that's supposed to be like your big weaving narrative throughout a lot of it then the it really turns me off the movie in certain ways so i think that she was a significant miss in this movie on the gadget side of things definitely uh, thumbs up for me. We've got the the little camera recorder thing. We've got the the silly little shoe, but that uh, the briefcase is fantastic. 
yeah, definite improvement. Thumbs up for that. Thumbs way up for me. Villains, I like every single villain in this movie. Yes, they all play their roles very well, right? Yeah, it's a very significant uptick from the previous one. There's a lot more villains surrounding it. And yeah, Grant's great. Cleb's great. Um, Blofeld in the small role that he has is great as well. And the the like extraneous villains surrounding it all play a role as well. So so yeah, I'm very impressed with the villains in this one. On the uh, the music side of things, we we just talked about it. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I like the theme. I like uh, I like that they kept the Bond theme going. They just they placed it in some weird spots, and I don't like the 007 theme, the the more bouncy one. Yeah, I already said I liked From Russia with Love, and all the music here I thought fit the movie very well. Maybe. Like Tony doesn't like how they use the theme in some places, but I'm not as much of a stickler for the franchise right now, so it didn't really bother me. It was, it was very um, middle of the road, almost bordering on meh for me, just because like I the main thing that I look out for with the music in Bond is the opening theme, and I thought that underwhelmed. So, and the titles we talked about that it's you know it's similar types of things. Um, the title of the film itself, though. I really like it. From Russia with Love is this flowy type of thing. It's not every Bond film should just be called, you know, the name of the villain or something. I actually prefer the movies that have the more poetic types of titles. Yeah, it's a good name for the movie. It really sets the, I mean, that's the the tone of the entire thing is based around the fact that it's, it's, a, it's essentially a girl from Russia who falls in love with Bond, essentially, and that's the idea of it. So, it, 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 it's a title that completely suits what the story is supposed to be. And I think maybe outside of things like uh, Live and Let Die, this is the one film name that has often been referenced or used in just regular pop culture. You, I've constantly heard, you know, From Russia With Love or like, hey, let's twist it. And it could be From Russia With Pain or From Russia With Hate. I've seen that done a lot, so... Clearly, it's stuck. On the action side of things, um, I we again we talked about it, but there's no need for the helicopter stuff and the boat stuff. But the action is filmed better, and overall, a step up from Doctor No. Yeah, and again, loved the fight scene with Grant. Yeah, the fight scene's the highlight, and it's clear they've got more budget to be able to do other stuff, even if it was a bit gratuitous and unnecessary for the actual flow of the movie. On the humor side of things, here's the the moment that stands out to me as one of the one of my favorite moments of the movie as far as just like quips go and everything. When Bond is uh going up to the guy and he's like, uh excuse me, is your clock right? Because they have the bond uh the bond. They have the bomb um in place and the guy's like, yeah, the Russian clocks are always right. And he's like hmm. Okay. He comes back and he's like, are you sure you're thinking? And it blows up and he's just like, oh, okay, there you go. I like that little part. Um, the humor is good in this. Um, there's there's some good moments here and there. Karimbe, of course, is the, the major highlight when it comes to the humor side of things. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a lot more, un- it's, it's understated, which is good, especially from the Bond side of things, the, the usual little quips. 
Um, I thought, yeah, Curran Bay is an excellent... It's not really comic relief because he does have a substantial character involved in it as well, but his personality and charisma was probably the most entertaining part of the whole movie for me. Yeah, I thought the comedy here was very good. And I well, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but yes, I enjoyed it. <laughs> so any other little thoughts before we uh, uh, do our final film assessment? Any I other moments really you want me to bring up? These movies keep the progression of going from, you know, getting better and better and better because I was like, yeah, I can totally see myself watching this film again. This is one that I will definitely watch again. Dr. No, not so much. I just can't get over the settling things in the gypsy way. That's kind of just going to follow me <laughs> for, for a while now. Essentially, that's just that line is just going to follow me. Just like this, how to settle things in the gypsy way. I kind of want to use that in just my usual, like just going around certain things where I just see, I don't know, either like anybody just arguing with each other. It says, I think they just settle things in the gypsy way and then just like stand back and just see what they, <laughs> what they think. <laughs> that's uh, when we'd start doing, um, the like the next Mount Rushmore, and we have to figure out okay, well, who are we going to pick or whatever? We need to settle in the gypsy way, yeah, just like oh, the family's arguing at Thanksgiving or something. <laughs> oh, we could settle things in the gypsy way, <laughs> maybe not with family because apparently settling it in the gypsy way ends up with a threesome. <laughs> so it's gonna... <laughs> well, only if you interrupt this and like kill that's everyone true. else associated with it, and they say, okay, you decide. If somebody outside the family comes in, then they are the one that sleeps with two family members. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe you, should, maybe you should just say something to like um, Caroline at one point, just like get into a fake argument with her and says, I think we should settle this in the gypsy way. <laughs> oh, she watches those shows of like gypsy wedding crap and whatever. Oh, and yeah. She would be like, oh, which way? <laughs> you know, just kind of like, she would, she would know more about it than I would. Um, so overall assessment, uh, shaken, not stirred. I'm going to say shaken. Good movie. Very much shaken for me. Ugh, I, I'm, I'm torn <laughs> no because it's just there's so many things that I like about this movie because it just feels more like a Bond movie than Doctor No but the overarching story the overarching thing about the relationship between Bond and Tanya is just so badly done that I kind of have to give it stirred I think mm, I'm very surprised I, I thought this was going to be one of your uh, one of your more favourite ones I, I, I love so many elements about it but I just think that the the whole crux of it, the whole like the whole thread that should connect the whole movie is really, really loose and all really, really like weak and is fraying at the edges and all this other stuff. And like, everything that surrounds it is fantastic and so much improvement over Dr. No, but I think that that part needed to be so much better for it to just for the, the sake of the story. Like other, if, if, if that part was even just like a fraction better, it would definitely be shaken for me, like a full fledged shaken, but I just feel like that's, leaving a lot to be desired for me at the very least. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So that is the second bond film. We have many, many more to go. Uh, obviously we hope that you continue listening to this throughout the whole franchise that we're doing here. Um, and you should be following us all over the place to make sure that you are aware of when these get posted. Cause we're recording them in advance. This is uh, the 12th of January. I still have no idea when I'm going to post these. It's kind of depending on how many uh, we can get through at different time frames and whatever. But, um, you know, if you are subscribed to the channel on YouTube and you get the email notifications, you'll be aware of when these things get posted. 
And the same thing with the website itself, of course, fanboysanonymous.com. If you follow us on Facebook and Twitter or anything, you'll get these alerts for different things outside of the Review to Overkill uh, podcast. Because we do, I do the Weekend Geek, you know, um, we do some movie reviews or some other things down the line. And you can check out whatever we've got happening on the review points or the fan tracks or whatever it might be. We might even do like a fan tracks for one of these films at some point instead of watching it like, uh, you know, and then reviewing it. We might end up doing like a fan track for one or something. I don't know. But um, check out the, whatever's happening there. Um, follow what these guys have going on as well. Uh, Toss out your plugs, Rob. Yeah, you can follow me at Twitter at Dude Felice, and you can check out everything I'm doing on Fightful and WrestleZone, as always. But you should also check out what I'm doing here on Smart Out Moment, including the Paul Heyman SmackDown podcast. Callum, tell them about the Paul Heyman SmackDown podcast. Well, first of all, I'll tell you that we're on Fanboys Anonymous, not Smart Out Moment, so we'll get that right, first of all. <laughs> but, oh, well, uh... it's, that's, it's Tony. It's a Tony site. Okay? <laughs> You're on the Tony panel. It works. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, um, I'm mostly featured over on the Smart Cat Moment side of things. So check out the Paul Heyman SmackDown podcast where me and Rob are going through all of uh, SmackDown in the tenureship of Paul Heyman as the head writer. So we're into 2003 right now. So if you're interested in wrestling and you're interested in some retro times from like the Ruthless Aggression era, then definitely check that out as well. If you're into wrestling in general, then you should be checking out SmartCatMoment.com for all the great articles and news that we've got on the website. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at WickMeister14. Definitely. Since you mentioned that we're here on Fanboys Anonymous, I guess we should say Tony and I have been doing a lot of stuff on Fanboys Anonymous. I don't know when this drops. So check out our Mulan review. Check out our review of Batman Soul of the Dragon. And Tony, what else we got coming over here? I don't even know what else we've got coming, except for that eventually, somewhere along the line, we're going to do something about WandaVision. So. I know that they're getting a staggered release, so we might do something after they're all done. We might do like a first impressions thing. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll figure it out. It might have already been done. might already be up on the channel. Question marks. uh, Shrugs. Who who knows? But what I do know is that coming up next is going to be 003, episode 003, not uh, Agent 003. We're going to get into 008 instead. But um, follow us all over the place. You're following me at Tony Mango. Follow the Fanboys Anonymous stuff, obviously, at fanboysanonymous.com and the Smart Cat Moment stuff while we're on Smart Cat Moment. And we will be seeing you next time, everybody, because this podcast will return with Goldfinger. Goldfinger.